Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. And how do we look at the Word of God? How do we do that? We are going to be talking today with my friend Jeff Verdorn. We're continuing our study in 1 Thessalonians. And it's a very important question how we look at the Word of God. I can't think of a more important question than that, Jeff. Can you? No, we actually did a whole series on it called, well, you affectionately <laughs> named it Bible Bible. Bible Bible, yeah. Yeah, Bible Bible. It was a fun series. It was. It was fun saying that. It is it is fun saying it, <laughs> kind of like pizza pizza. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of catchy, you got to admit. It was. We were always going to do a little jingle for it, but we never did. Yeah, never got around to no, it. No, we didn't. But today we're going to go back to our study on First Thessalonians. I think we're going to start in chapter two, but uh, again, I just want to let people know how important it is uh, how we look at God's word and how the sacred scripture, how we revere this holy uh, word of God and and understand its truth. We are going to review a little bit from last time, and then we are going to jump right into that question to start uh, as we continue on in our study of Thessalonians. We're, we said this was going to be six, seven weeks. It's going to be mm, 10, 12 weeks or, or 10, 12 sessions, I think. Well, I already said I'd pay, only pay for six or seven. Okay, so well, you're you going to have to count is, me five. This is the extra bonus size, the right. supersized <laughs> Thessalonians study. All right, let's do it then. All right, well, last time we were looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul says that he worked night and day in order not to be a burden on anyone. And we spent... Uh, quite a bit of time looking at that passage, both in terms of those who are in ministry, like Paul, not being a financial burden to anybody. Uh, And yet we saw this principle at work that Paul sowed spiritually into people's lives, and he often received a material blessing back for his efforts. And it's just a wonderful picture of God's economy that when you sow into people's lives, you will receive a material blessing back. And Paul was the one that said, by the way, do not muzzle the oxen while he's treading out grain. Uh, So people can make a living by preaching the gospel. We also looked a little bit at a warning he gives about those who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So uh, we could name off some nationally known folks who are making lots, millions and millions and millions of dollars, uh, you know, in their ministries. I, I remember my son, uh, he was probably about nine years old, watching this show on TV about a guy who said, if you send in your $1,000 now, I will send you this prayer cloth and God will bless it a thousand times over to you. Well, was he really preaching the true word of God or was he making money selling handkerchiefs, right? Maybe, yeah. Yeah. So um, a warning about that. For those in the church, we spent some time talking about that we are to be uh, generous. We are to give not out of obligation like was the tithe in the Old Testament. Remember in the Old Testament, God told Israel that they were to give a tithe, a tenth of all that their fields or their flocks produced. But it was an obligation for them. God asked for it. The New Testament picture is from Corinthians. Paul says that you should 
give cheerfully as you determine from the heart, not out of obligation. And uh, and then we spent some time talking about this principle of sowing and reaping. Those who sow sparingly will reap sparingly, but if you sow generously, you will reap generously. And so, yes, we are to give to the work of the church, ministries, uh, missionaries, and on and on, and also those with in, in need in the body, widows and orphans, but be discerning about it. Even Paul said, don't put every widow on the list, and if a man should not work, he shall not eat. So we should always be discerning on how we give. But I, I actually think the church does this well. Um, when we see someone in the body who is truly in need, the church as that I have seen over my lifetime rallies around that person and is always there to help. So I actually think we do this pretty well. So there's what we talked about last time. So we move into nice, verse... Nice recap, by the way. Thank you. Jeff Fordorn is my guest. We're continuing our study in First Thessalonians. All right. So and let's by pick the way, up. Yeah. I never pay you. <laughs> <laughs> I have to let that joke be known. I know it. But you, you have promised food. I often. have on occasion. On, well, on occasion. On occasion. Yeah. Yes. You I never... Have. You never really see my fingers crossed the day of <laughs> behind my back when I'm promising food for you guys. Yeah. That's guy talk on Thursday. This is a uh, a joy to work here. It, to to everything I do here. That my re- you know what I do. Mm. My rewards in heaven. That's amen. what my reward is. Yeah, amen. All right, verse thirteen. Uh, do you want to read f- verse thirteen? Uh, first Thessalonians I, I, chapter two, verse thirteen. I can if you just give me one second because I just had something go down on my computer. Um, so let's see here. I have it. Do you want me to read this one? You can read the next one. Um, let's see here. I think I got it. I'm going to read from the New International Version, First Thessalonians chapter two, verse thirteen. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human uh, word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you. Who believe? Well, there's actually several key phrases in this passage that I want to point out. First of all, uh, never forget that God's word is the word of God. What a, what an amazing concept, right? He says you accepted the His word as it actually is the word of God. Remember, Scripture, sixty six books, penned by forty plus men over fifteen hundred years, uh, actually across three continents, um, has one author, and that is God. God wrote all 66 books of the Bible. This is where at the top of the show, you mentioned this um, teaching we did called Bible Bible. In that series, we went through a number of evidences that the word of God is actually God's word. It's from God. We looked at external evidence, that's evidences such as the historicity of scripture. Scripture is a, a a history document that is proven to be completely accurate in what it describes in, in a historical sense. Also, archaeology keeps confirming. It seems like every month I get an email from a, a ministry that, that I watch that uh, is, is saying some other archaeological found was just discovered that confirms something in the Bible. No archaeological discovery or historical uh, finding has ever disproven anything in the Bible. The Bible has proven 100% accurate in that regard. I love that track record, by the way. It is. It, it, There's never just been like a, God to be 100% accurate, 100%. right? 100%. There's yeah. never been an archaeological find that has refuted anything in Scripture. Correct. Yeah. And in fact, there have been many cases where archaeo- historians and archaeologists have said, oh, that 
reference in the Bible, that can't happen. We've never found anything. Right. And lo and behold, somebody finds something, and sure enough, it was accurate after. Like the Hittite civilization. Yeah, there's a number of them. I, yeah. I have a list of those. I have Hittite I, friends, so yeah. <laughs> I know they were, they were around. Uh, do you give them food? No. 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 Okay, good. Nobody gets food. No. Internal evidences. The author identifies himself as God often. Now, some say, well, that's an internal self-fulfilling you know, kind of piece of evidence, but it is. And, and, and normally if we looked at a book and we want to know who wrote it, we, we should look at the cover and often the author identifies himself. God identified himself as the author. There is a consistent message throughout all of Scripture. There is a thread of the story of redemption that is consistent from beginning to end. And the probably the biggest evidence of all, as one commentator said, this is like God's fingerprints on the Word of God, and that is fulfilled prophecy. God has predicted hundreds and hundreds of events about people, places, events, wars, king, kingdoms, and so on, that have been historically provably fulfilled exactly as the prophet said it would. Well, who can predict the future with 100% accuracy? Once again, only God. So Scripture says, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed. It comes from God. He has inspired it. And uh, as, as First Peter, I'm sorry, Second Peter 1 says, for prophecy never had its origins in human will, but men, uh, prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, there's the inspiration of Scripture. So everything that is written in Scripture uh, was truly, while penned by men, the author was God. And by the way, God's word is power. His words are the only words that are living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Um, For the word of God alone is alive and active, um, Hebrews 4 says, and is good, by the way, for us for training in righteousness. There's a a guy by the name of George Mueller, and I love this quote, because George Mueller, um, he lived in, in England a while ago, did some orphanages and stuff, but he said this about his own personal study of the Word of God in his autobiography. He said this, like many believers, I practically preferred for the first four years of my divine life, for my Christian life, the works of uninspired men to the oracles of the living God. The consequence was that I remained a babe both in knowledge and in grace. In knowledge, I say, for all true knowledge must be derived by the Spirit from the Word. And as I neglected the Word, I was for nearly four years so ignorant that I did not clearly know even the fundamental points of our holy faith. And this lack of knowledge most sadly kept me back from walking steadily in the ways of God. I love that line that he preferred the works of uninspired men to the oracles of God. Mm -hmm. I think Christians and Christianity often sometimes will immediately go for the answer to a commentary or to a book or whatever. And, and, And I think just as Paul commends the Bereans in Acts 17, who searched the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true, we as Christians should go to the word of God first. It's his words, God's words, are the only words that are living and active. The only way I know 
how to truly grow in the faith and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ is by time spent in his word and with him. That's a perfect place to take our first break, Jeff. Uh, Jeff Verdorn is my guest. We're continuing our study in 1 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 2 right now. And we're going to take a break and come back and we're going to learn some more. Listen to Faith Radio Live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app in your app store today. I'm back with Jeff Verdorn. We're talking about 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're in our series of going through the whole book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, so I think you'll enjoy this ride. We're in 1 Thess chapter 2, verse 13. Jeff, I think... We were talking sports during the break, but I think you want to do a little recap again. Well, um, not a recap so much as going back and look at one other aspect of this verse 13, and that is that the Thessalonians accepted, so I wanted to focus on this word, accepted the word of God um, as God's word um, and is at work in you who believe. Well, here's this picture of accepting the word, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a a nod to God's plan of salvation. God's plan of salvation is very simple. We hear it. We hear the message, the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. We believe it, and then we're saved. They, the Thessalonians, accepted it. Same, same. Each person must decide to accept this message to accept God's truth for themselves. This is a perfect picture of salvation. Revelation chapter 3 says God stands at the door and knocks. He is knocking on every single person's heart. God is. And he's revealing himself to every single person through creation, through eternity written on man's heart, through the righteous requirements of the law written on people's hearts, through the church who's supposed to preach the gospel. He is, he is knocking on every single person's door. But what comes next? Whosoever opens the door, well, that's a picture of faith. Mm-hmm. I will come in and eat with them and they with me. That's salvation. So God is knocking, but each person, in order to be saved, must open that door. That's a picture of faith. Okay, Jeff, what if a rash of reason just came over someone's mind who's in their car driving and heard that? And they've been thinking, you know, I've been hearing this for a long time. And for some reason, the words this Jeff guy just said resonated with me. And I know it now to be true, and I need to do this and make a step of faith. You know, that's a, it, it, it is, because I, I immediately go to the, to the parable of the prodigal son. And in that parable, it says that, we know the story, this man had two sons, and one of the sons took his inheritance and ran off. And I think this parable is about salvation. And it says right in the middle of that parable, when the man came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Remember, he was wallowing in the world. He had spent all his money. He didn't have anything. And and yes, the parable is talking materially, but really the picture is spiritually. You're separated from God. If you've just understood for the first time that all you have to do is believe and be saved, then 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 do it. Do it as an act of your will that says, 
Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for the sins of the world, that you were buried and you rose again in power and in glory, and you promise whosoever believes in you shall not perish but have eternal life. Remember the thief on the cross? Mm -hmm. The first thief on one side of Jesus said, if you're the son of God, save yourself and save us. Do something. Yeah. Do you think he believed in Jesus? No. No. The second thief said, this is Jeff's paraphrase here, basically, shut up, you. We deserve <laughs> our punishment. Yeah. We're getting what we deserve. Right. He recognized his, his the judgment that was coming upon him. You know that verse that says godly sorrow leads to repentance? I think the second thief understood that he was guilty before God. Yeah. And all he says, this is the same thing as the Thessalonians when they said they accepted it. Well, the thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's all he said. That's simple faith. Even though they were both about to die on that cross, this man believed who Jesus was and believed that he had the power to bring him into his kingdom, even though they were both about to die. Mm -hmm. So if that message is your message, and on this day, June 20th, 2023, you realize now I need to take that step of faith. You can do that right now. Mm -hmm. And if you want to let me know, contact me, I'll be happy to pray with you. Uh, it'd be exciting to tell us that you did it. That would be wonderful. 877-933-2484. All right, Jeff, let's get back to some other business. Although what we just talked about was the most important business. It is. Salvation is the most important theme in scripture and the most important event in your life. If you want the moment you believe and uh, if you just did that, know that all of heaven is rejoicing mm -hmm. over your salvation. All right. And verse, everyone in the studio. And everybody in the studio right. as well. Absolutely. Uh, verse 14. Do you want to read 14 and 15? I will. Let me just click. Do you still have it up? Or? I do. 14 okay. and 15. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone. Mm, we have a sequence of persecution outlined in this, in this verse. First Christ, he suffered at the hands of the Jews. Then the church in Jerusalem was persecuted and they were scattered throughout the, the known known world around the land of Jerusalem. And then now Paul was talking about the Thessalonians being persecuted. Well, guess what? We as believers in Christ will also be persecuted. We will be persecuted for being Christians in this world. That's why Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. John 15, 18. He also said, do not, John said, do not be surprised, my brothers, if this world hates you. Why are we surprised when the lost world acts lost, mm -hmm. when the sinful world acts sinful, when those who are children of darkness are opposed to the children of light. Why are we surprised by this? The brighter you are going to let your light shine in this world, the more persecution you will, you will find in this world. That's why Paul says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. Second Timothy 3.12, and yet God says, let your light shine before men 
so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, in James chapter 1, he says, when you, when you experience this persecution, James says, consider it pure joy. Now, I, I don't know about you, but when persecution comes my way, joy is probably the last kind of emotion that I'm thinking, right? I'm thinking escape. I'm thinking, why me? I'm thinking, you know, how do I get out of here? Whatever. But joy? Really? Um, Peter, 1 Peter 4 also says, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Well, here it is again. Rejoice. Acts 5 actually has a story about the apostles doing this very thing, rejoicing in the face of persecution. So in Acts chapter 5, we only got a couple minutes here. I gotta, I'll get through this. The apostles were being bright lights. They were performing many miraculous signs and wonders, verse 12 in Acts 5, even so much that even Peter's shadow being cast on people was healing some people, verse 15. And many, many believed in the Lord, verse 14. But the Sanhedrin got jealous. They got jealous of the apostles and the attention that they were getting and the fact that they were having many, many people start following them, verse 17. So they arrested the apostles and they put them in jail, verse 18. That night an angel comes, lets them all out of prison and tells them, go preach again. So they went out the next morning and started preaching in the temple courts again, verse 21. And guess what? They got arrested again, verse 26. And the high priest came came to them and said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, verse 27. And Peter and the other apostles replied, I love this. Shall we obey God rather than men? Verse 28. The Sanhedrin was so furious, they wanted to put him to death. But a, a Pharisee named Gamal, Gal, Gamaliel, is that close? No, I, I, it's um, uh, Gamaliel. That sounds right. Yeah, I think it There is. you go. Why did names, why couldn't it just, you know... Jeff and Bill. Yeah, Jeff and Bill. Uh, convinced the Sanhedrin not to kill them because they said, he said, basically, this might be from God. You guys don't want to be opposed to God. So they just had them flogged instead. Oh, man. But here's, here's the point. On their way home, it says, how did, how did the apostles react? The apostles left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name, verse 41. Mm -hmm. So they just get flogged by the Sanhedrin for preaching in the name of Jesus, and they rejoice about it. Amazing. It is amazing. And I think it's Gamaliel. 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 That's it. I think that's it, yeah. We'll take a break. When we come back, plenty more teaching with Jeff Verdorn from First Thessalonians. We're continuing our study. We're going to get through both books and right now, we have been looking at some great passages in the second chapter, verses 13, 14, 15. So that's where we are. We'll take a break and be right back. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno, Brad 
let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. Welcome to the show. I hope you've been having a good day. And if you just climbed into the car or turned on the radio, Jeff Verdorn is my guest, and we're studying First Thessalonians, and I'm enjoying this. We are going to now talk about the wrath of God. That's a great pre-dinner conversation, Jeff. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the wrath of God is just as much of God's character as his as is his love and his mercy and his grace. And justice. And his justice So yeah. and his righteousness. It's part of his character. So, yes, we should know and understand it. So, verse 16, do you want to read verse 16? Yes. In their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, in this way they always keep us. Up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Well, so who are the the them? They are them as those who tried to block the gospel from keeping Paul from speaking to the Gentiles. Um, and God's wrath is upon them. God's wrath is only upon those who are not saved. Uh, we see um, this kind of opposition, by the way, throughout the book of Acts. Paul was always being persecuted. Uh, for proclaiming the gospel and was getting in trouble for it. but And he encountered many what the Bible calls enemies of God or enemies of the gospel, Romans 11 says. These enemies are separated from God. They are lost. God calls them, actually, uh, an interesting phrase. He calls those who are opposed to Christ, he calls them anti-Christ. Now, Remember, there is the Antichrist who is going to come upon the world, and we are actually going to speak about him when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, because there's uh, uh, several things said about this coming Antichrist. But in the meantime, those who are Antichrist, those who are opposed to Christ, are the enemies of God, and God calls them Antichrist. 1 John 2, 18, dear children, this is the last hour and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. That's the Antichrist, right? Mm-hmm. The beast, mm-hmm. the man of lawlessness. He's coming during the end times. But even now, many Antichrists have already come. This is how we know it is the last hour. First uh, John 2, later he says, Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. Now, I wouldn't go around to your lost friends and start an evangelistic conversation by saying, you know, you're an enemy of God. You are the antichrist, an antichrist or whatever. That's Mm. probably not the best way to start a conversation about the truth. But know this, that anybody who does not know Christ, remember Jesus himself says, basically, if you are either with me or you are against me, you're either saved and united with God or you're not, you're lost. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. You can't be a middle-of-the-road kind of person. There is like no really, such thing. I'm not really a Jesus freak, but I'm not into anything from the other side. So just uh, let me live in the middle. You can't do that? You can't do that. How come? Um, because there's only two kinds of people in this world biblically. Mm-hmm. And those are th- those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins and those who have received the forgiveness of Christ and are now united with him. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. There's only two kinds of people in this world. 
Right. But there's a lot of people that say, hey, you know, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, this is where that middle ground, it's hard to tell, right? Because we can't see people's hearts. And I know some people who are saved. I think they truly are born again, right? Jesus said, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. So there's only those who are born again and those who are not born again. I think there's a lot of folks out there who are truly born again. They have that simple mustard seed of faith and are saved, but are kind of, I'll call them couch potato Christians. They're not really into the word. Maybe they're not going to church that much. They they believe, but they're really not growing. They're, 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 they, they need that, that spiritual milk that Paul talks about to start growing up in their faith, right? But those people are hard to distinguish between them and what I call cultural Christians, those Christians who are not actually born again and think they're Christian because they're not Muslim or they're not Hindu and they grew up in America, and it's just by default they're quote-unquote Christians, but they're not truly born again. Mm -hmm. From our perspective, it's hard to tell one from the other. But from God's perspective, there's a light years of difference. One is saved for all of eternity, and one isn't. What about the two billion people living in in India who practices Hinduism? Yeah, and they're sincere. You know, they they are. You can be sincere in your faith, but you can be sincerely wrong. Right? Mm-hmm. It's the object of that faith that is so important. And your faith is either going to be based on the true and living God uh, or on a lie. And God says behind every single false religious belief system in the world, there every idol, he says there's a demon. These are lies of the world. And um, yeah, Jesus himself said this. Look, if you want to do a survey of the world's religions, I would recommend you start with Christianity because Christianity makes some very exclusive claims. Actually, they all make exclusive claims. But Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. God says there's one mediator between God and man, and that's the person of Jesus Christ, one gate, one doorway, that's the only way to God. If you want to know the God of creation, the God who made the heavens and the earth, he says in his word that there's one way to do that, and that's through the person of Jesus Christ. And here's the great news. If you want to know that God who made everything and gave gives life to all things, God says that if you seek me, you will find me, if you seek me with all of your heart. So it doesn't matter if you're a Hindu in India, um, a cultural Christian living in you know Iowa or anywhere in the world. If you want to know the true God of creation, God says, if you seek me, you will find me if you mm-hmm. seek me with all of your heart. Good word. That's pretty good news, isn't That's it? Very good news. And by the way, Jesus died for the guy in India. He got, died for the guy in Amazon. He died for the guy in Des Moines, he did not, He died for all. That's why John the Baptist proclaimed so boldly, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. Do, Jeff, though, do we sometimes read Scripture and think God will meet all of our needs according to the glorious riches in Christ Jesus? Do we as Americans think of that verse differently from, say, some people that live on a trash pile in India that are, are scrounging for garbage, for food, and they're, they're, we, we come with this good news and we tell them, God will meet all of your needs. Does it mean the same? It, um, 
Yeah, we have a, you know, if you have three squares a day, you have a place to sleep at night and some extra change in, in your pocket, you are wealthier than 90% of the world's population. Um, we don't understand how the rest of the world lives, unless you've traveled to some of these countries and have seen how the rest of the world lives. But yes, uh, Americans tend to talk about our needs. Uh, I know very few people personally in the United States, I know this exists, but who are truly hungry and truly trying to figure out where their next meal is coming from and where they're going to sleep at night. Now, we do have homeless people in this country. I mean, we do have people who are who are struggling to put food on the table, uh, but we have p- massive services, massive numbers of charities uh, to help all those people. There are people living in this world who literally, like you said, are looking in garbage dumps for their next meal. I know they are. Yeah. And there could be... Thousands and thousands of kids going to bed hungry tonight here in, here in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. So we've been in orphanages in Africa. I have a video of a, a young child, probably no more than two or three years old, and was very malnourished. And we took a video of this child. I have, I still have the video. Uh, we found out that a week later, this child died because mm. it just wasn't cared for, didn't have enough food. Heartbreaking. Uh, it happens all the time, all over the world. And, you know, we have the resources. Um, I, I, I don't want to get too political here, but most of the issues of the world of people not getting the food that they need, God has provided this world with abundance, and we have abundance in this world. One of the biggest issues is governments. It's man. Um, around the world. Around the world. Yeah. Much of the pro- poverty that we see is not cause because God hasn't put enough food on this planet or something. It's primarily because you have people in governments that um, are generally the, the issue with with uh, hunger around the world. Mm-hmm. We'll just put it that way yeah, without getting there. too political. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, so we were talking about the Antichrist and that uh, people who are lost are called, described by God, as enemies of God, and uh, but but not the Antichrist who is yet to come. And like I said, we'll talk about him when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But but notice what this verse also says. It says that wrath awaits them. God's wrath awaits them. And here's the wonderful promise. Well, not the wonderful promise for those who don't know who don't know God, who don't know Christ, because like Romans 1 says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. All that's left for them, according to Romans 2, is wrath and anger. But here's the good news. This is the good news part of it. John three thirty six says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life because God's wrath remains on him. There's a way to get out from under God's wrath. Very truly, I tell you, John 5 says, whoever hears my words and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Once you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's wrath is no longer on you. Remember Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Very good, Jeff Dorn. Continuing our study in 1 Thessalonians, if you just joined us. Why don't I want to do one thing here when we're talking about the wrath, and that is very briefly describe these two judgments that await these two groups of people, believers and unbelievers. 
Unbelievers go to one judgment. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. It actually happens at the end of this millennial reign that is yet future. And at the end of that thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, all of the unbelievers will be brought before the Great White Throne Judgment. Their names will not be found in the Lamb's Book of Life. And they are thrown into the lake of fire, which Revelation calls the second death. This judgment is described in, throughout Scripture. Uh, it, you know, this is the fire. This is the hellfire. This is the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is destruction. You know, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many go through that. This is their judgment, the unbelievers' judgment. The believers are do not participate in that judgment. Actually, we participate, but we're on the other side. We are sitting with God, with Christ judging the world. Paul says, do you not know that we, believers, will judge the world? Cool. Our judgment is what's called in Scripture, in Corinthians, it's called the Bema judgment or the judgment seat. Now, this is very different judgment. This is more like, you can think of it as a reward ceremony. The Bema, for example, in Corinth, and and you could look up the Bema in Corinth, it's a raised platform. Officials would give speeches there. They'd have political debates there. And sometimes athletes would stand on it and they'd be awarded for their uh, for their prizes. And they would receive a crown, a wreath crown on their head for what they achieved. This is the picture of the Bema, of our judgment, which will be in heaven, I believe right after the rapture of the church. We will be rewarded. We will be crowned. And we're going to talk about crowns in a couple sessions. But that is our judgment. It's a judgment of rewards for what we've done in the body. The picture is in 1 Corinthians 3 is that what we did that was outside of faith, outside of God bearing the fruit in our lives, things that we did tried to do in our own power or for our own reasons and our own motivations, that is burned up and what remains, God says, we will be rewarded for. That's our judgment. Uh, it's not a judgment like the lost is going to receive. It's more like a reward ceremony. Think of the Olympic athletes who stand on a platform and used to receive a crown. Now they receive a medal mm-hmm. around their neck. That's our judgment. That's the judgment seat of Christ. That's mm-hmm. the being seat. Jeff, may I take a break right yes. now? Perfect. Awesome. Jeff Verdorn is my guest. We're continuing our study in First Thessalonians. We'll take a short one and be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. Welcome back to the show. We're talking to Jeff Verdorn studying 1 Thessalonians. Paul, uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy brought the message about Jesus the Messiah to the city of Thessalonica. And right now we're in chapter 2, and we're about to jump into a little bit of um, a couple of challenging verses here, Jeff, 17 and 18. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you like can you read, read them? Yeah. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought... Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, 
but Satan blocked our way. Yeah, so Paul was with them, and then they were separated. He had to leave. Um, Timothy actually goes back, but Paul never ends up going back to Thessalonica. Um, and one of the reasons is we have this verse here. It's it's uh, kind of amazing. He says, but Satan blocked our way to come back. Now, what is this all about? Is is Satan blocking our way? Well, I, I, people often talk about our spiritual battle and our spiritual warfare. And I, I want to spend the last 15 minutes talking about our spiritual battle that we are in. I don't know that that Christians today are... are you know, facing Satan directly as opposed to all of the other powers and principalities in the heavenly realms that Paul talks about. I think Paul was a little more important than, you know, the, than the rest of us. And Paul specifically says that Satan himself was blocking his, his way. Now, I don't think Satan was standing in the road, you know, waving swords, keeping Paul away. I think this is a representation of the spiritual battle that that we all face. Um, and And we do. Scripture talks about the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. The enemy is always trying to thwart the kingdom of God. Paul says of the enemy, know his schemes. So let's talk for a minute about what are Satan's schemes? What's the enemy's schemes against the people of God? I think that he lies, he torments, and he tempts. I think these are the weapons of the enemies. Now, this battle, by the way, God often uses military language in Scripture. So we are called soldiers uh, in Scripture. Paul in 2 Timothy says, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs. The civilian affairs are the ways of the world. We shouldn't be concerned with the things of this world. We are soldiers. We have a different message he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ. Paul says that we carry weapons in this battle. He says the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of this world. We have righteousness in the right hand and, and in the left and truthful speech and the power of God. Uh, we fight. He uses terminology that this spiritual battle is a fight. So we fight the good fight of faith. Now, this is not physical fighting. The training that we do to prepare for this fight is to know the Word of God. This fight is a fight for truth. And so Paul says when he says, I fought the, the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, Paul fought for truth his whole life. That's the fight that he was in. That's what contending for the faith means. We're contending for the faith of God, for his truth. So this battle... What does this battle look like? Well, Paul in Ephesians 6 describes the battle like this. And this is a few passages here. I'll skip over a couple parts, but it's it's a little longer passage. So this is Ephesians 6, talking about our spiritual battle. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, not if, but when, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. And then he describes the different parts of this armor. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, 
with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Sounds like God has dressed us pretty thoroughly for this battle that we are in. And then he says, stand firm. And and I like to point out whenever I read this passage that it's a lot easier to stand firm as you're dressed in Roman armor with a whole bunch of other Christians who are also dressed in Roman armor. Mm-hmm. And we stand side by side, making a much more formidable So if you are doing this Christian thing on your own, yeah, you've got great armor, but it's always easier to fight against one than against more than one. So make sure if you are a believer right now that you have a group of people that you are doing this battle with, a group of men, if you're a guys that you can rely on. My men's group, it's called my Iron Man group. It's after a verse in scripture that says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man's faith sharpens another. That's my small group. That's my squad. We are all fully dressed and fully armed because it's a dangerous world out there spiritually. And we come together once a week to build each other up, to sharpen our swords, to build it, build into each other's lives and to encourage and equip one another. Fantastic. And, yeah. And, and every single Christian, either guy or gal, should have a group of men or women that they uh, that they can turn to um, in in their times of need. Who's the one person that you would call? You know, at midnight when you've got some issue or problem, uh, who is that person? And uh, have a group of people that you're doing this Christian walk with. All right. So, what are the 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 devil's schemes? Oh, we're we're, we're I'm going to run out of time, but let's start walking through these. He lies. So. Scripture calls Satan a serpent, a devil. He leads the world astray. He accuses our brethren. He masquerades as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says this is one of his schemes. How do we combat lies? Well, with truth, of course. If you know God's word, if you know God's truth, Satan tries to masquerade as truth, as an angel of light, But he doesn't do it very well. If you know God's truth, you can spot Satan's lies a mile away. He also tempts. So Matthew says the tempter came and that Satan um, tempts us. And so how do we fight temptation? We fight temptation, as James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him and stand firm in the faith. Flee from him. Flee from situations where you are being tempted and flee, run. Remember, James says, that no temptation comes except that is common to man. But if you are tempted, God will give you a way out. That's the promise of Corinthians. So pray, put on the armor, flee from those situations, resist the devil, and he will actually flee from you. And then he torments. Now, This is a tougher one. Do you remember Paul where he says that a a messenger from Satan was giving him a thorn in the flesh and he prayed to God three times to take it away, but he never did and he had it. And as far as we know, we don't know what this thorn was. Uh, It sounds physical to me, a thorn in the flesh. Many theologians have written many things on what this thorn was. 
Um, I think the best idea about what this was was probably Paul's eyesight. Mm. He probably had some kind of uh, degeneration of his eyesight, and that's that's what I think probably may have been his thorn in his flesh. But regardless of what it is, Paul was tormented. And in fact, Paul at one point says that he was tormented to such a degree and so severely that he even desired death. Second Corinthians 1 says that he suffered persecution beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even life itself. Some will say that God will never let you be tormented beyond what you can bear, but that is actually not what Scripture says. Scripture says you won't be tempted beyond what you can bear. There is actually no such promise in Scripture about being tormented, and in fact, Many, many a a Christian have been even killed for their faith over the last 2,000 years. Paul was persecuted to such a degree that he he desired even death. Um, So look, that's one of the enemy's tactics. Christians have been persecuted for for 2,000 years, uh, and it's not going to stop anytime soon. So he lies, he tempts, and he torments. Great study, Jeff. Thank you once again for continuing our study in First Thessalonians. If you missed any of this, you can go to the podcast, myfaithradio.com. Check it out. Loved being with you today. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.